I think our, I think our culture, and I, I, I talk a lot about our culture, but I think from my perspective, um, there, there is this, not new, but I think it's just a lot easier to distract ourselves, to divert ourselves from our failures. That when I even say the word failure, I think a lot of us automatically kind of distance ourselves from our own failures in our lives. And what I've realized is, in a lot of ways, um, instead of trying to focus on my failures and how I've messed up and how I've not succeeded in certain ways, I distract myself. Uh, I watch sports, and instead of worrying about my failures, I yell at my team's failures. I yell at their failures and say, you know, you guys are so stupid for, for doing that, for making that trade, for hiring that coach. And I, I, I begin to focus and divert my attention elsewhere. Uh, if you have a, a, a son or if you know a young man, uh, I, I, I like to consider myself pretty young. They probably play a lot of video games. A lot, a lot of young guys and a lot of the kids play a lot of video games. Video games are great. They're wonderful. I play them all the time. They're, they're awesome. But one of the things that video games allows you to do is to divert your attention, to kind of ignore reality for a moment and all of the stuff that's going on, and it allows you to kind of escape. It allows you to, to get into a mode where you're no longer thinking about all the things that you failed in, but all of a sudden you're focusing on winning, on the successes. I'm, I'm good at this game. And so even if you lose in a video game, the stakes are very low. Today, I want us to understand that there are some failures in life. That there are some things that there is such a disappointment. That it's so heartbreaking. It's so hard to deal with. That there is no amount of distraction, no amount of diversion that can stop the pain. That we have to deal with it. That we have to face it. And there comes a point where we can't run away any longer. We can't just ignore and blind ourselves from the reality. Eric did a great job sharing his testimony. And even when he mentions you know, losing people to colon cancer, um, my wife, Grace, her dad died of colon cancer. And it's one of those things that never goes away. That it's, it's easier just to ignore. It's easier just to, to be distracted, to not think about those things. But in many ways, that pain leads to a natural reaction. It leads to a very human reaction. And I, I want us to understand today, whether you've gone to church your whole life or whether this is your first Sunday, I want you to understand that these reactions that we have towards failures are not sinful. I need, I need you to understand that from my perspective, as I read the Bible and as I go into reading his word every day and reading what God has to tell you, I think that there has been a lie that has been told to you. That you are not allowed to feel anger. You are not allowed to feel sadness. You are not allowed to have doubts. You are not allowed to be afraid. Because God does not like that. 
God wants you to be strong. God wants you to be faithful. God wants you to be loving. Despite what's going on in your life, God demands that you be a certain way. I would like to object. I disagree. I disagree. I think God wants us to have a natural reaction to the failures, the problems in our lives. Not because he likes the reaction, but because he wants to respond to our natural reaction. God does not want you to fake it. He doesn't want you to come to church and and, and fake faith and fake love and fake enjoying coming to church. He wants you to be real and genuine. As I, as I talk to my friends who are in church, who are, who are leading other churches, and I talk to even lay people, just the people that, that go to the service and, and just partake, one of the common critiques about the church is that it's fake. From the top to the bottom, that people are just so frustrated because, like, why are people so fake in church, especially? And what ends up happening is people would start to leave the church, rightfully so, because they don't want to be fake with people. They want to be real. And so they find, they find their reality, they find their truth in other things. And we hear this all the time. People leaving church to go, to go spend time in the mountains, to go spend time in a bar, to go spend time you know, doing, doing other humanitarian efforts because the church is so fake and so hypocritical. This Easter, I want to go into a text about Easter. And it's found in John chapter 20. But what I I want you to see as we read this first account, and there's three accounts or three perspectives that I want us to understand. And I want you to understand that these three reactions are not sinful in any way. These reactions are not sinful in any way. But God responds to each one of these reactions in a holy way. Let me read from John chapter 20, verse 1. It's on the screen behind me. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb of Jesus early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Verse 11. So we're going we're to skip down. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Verse 13. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God 
and your God. I want us to focus on the last, that last phrase. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So this, this story about Mary Magdalene going to the tomb of Jesus and she finds that the stone is rolled away and that the tomb is empty. Mary has this fear that robbers or thieves or even the opposers of Jesus took away the body to defile it, to, to do something to it that would be, that would be so far from, from even her understanding and comprehension. She was afraid that, that thieves would take his body and put it on display somewhere or they would hide it so that they would not be able to have this proper burial for her friend, for this man named Jesus whom she was following, whom she saw the miracles and saw all the things that God was doing. She wanted him to have a proper burial. And so when the stone was rolled away, she was so worried. And not only was she worried, she was still grieving over what happened on Friday, over what happened at the crucifixion. She was witnessing Jesus being murdered and killed in a dishonorable fashion. And so she was grieving. She was sobbing. She was weeping. She was a broken woman. And so she is on the lowest of lows. She is truly in the pit. And it's interesting, as, as Simon and the other disciple go back, Mary's there at the tomb, and these two angels appear. And not only that, as, as she's talking to these angels, Jesus is standing behind her. And Jesus is standing behind her, this broken woman, this woman who's sobbing and weeping. She turns around, sees Jesus in his resurrected body, and doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's, he's the gardener. He's like the, you know, the dude with the lawnmower. He th- she thinks he's just a, a worker, a helping hand. But Jesus reveals himself to her and, and he calls her by name. So she recognizes him in his new body that he's resurrected. He is risen. He is alive. And imagine just how weird Mary feels at this moment. How much conflict is going in her. She has, she's going through this grief, this loss, this failure, because she's, she's believed Jesus is the Messiah, the King of all creation, and he died. She saw him die. She saw him being put into the tomb. And yet, this man who is standing in front of her is saying, Mary, why are you crying? Mary, why are you, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? I think this is, this is first and foremost a way that we need to understand how God responds to our grief, to our sadness. That when we experience failure, when we experience loss, when we experience tragedy in our lives, and many times we expect that God wants us to be strong, hold back those tears. Don't be so emotional about this loss. Don't cry. Don't be transparent. Put up those walls. Don't let others know that you're struggling. Don't let anyone else around you know that you're grieving. Just kind of hold it in. Keep it bottled up inside because it's better that way and it's better for your faith. I disagree. What I see with Mary in this time in this moment that she has with Jesus. It's in her grieving that she meets Jesus. 
It's in the grieving that she has this opportunity to speak to Jesus. And this is not to minimize her grief. This is not to minimize her sorrow. Please do not think in any way that this is about minimizing your sorrow. Her sorrow was real. It was tangible. Her Lord, her Messiah was murdered, was killed. That's the truth. She was sobbing and weeping because of what happened to him. But it's in, it's in that grief that Jesus meets her. And he says something to her that's so amazing. He says something to her that is very profound. And he says that I'm, I'm going to ascend to my father, your father. I'm going to ascend to God, your God. I, I don't know if you really understand what this means because you have, to, you have to understand the whole context of the Gospels. But this whole time, Jesus has been saying that God is my Father and I will do what he says. And this is really what made, made the, 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 the religious world angry, the Jews angry. How can you call God your Father when you are just a man, when you are just a person? How dare you call God your Father as if you are putting God on your same level? Jesus tells Mary in this time of her grief, in time of her sadness, hey, guess what, Mary? You know, this whole time I've been saying God is my father and I'm going to see him. He's your father now. He's your God now. And in the same way that death has not overtaken me, in the same way that I am victorious over death, Mary, I want you to know that you are victorious over death. That you are victorious over all the powers and principalities, over all the evil in this world. That Mary, because my father is now your father, that my God is now your God, that you now have the same power. You have now the same authority. Mary, in her grief, is reminded that she is God's daughter. We are reminded in our grief in our sorrow, in our failure, when we are in our ashes, when we see destruction, evil, chaos around us, what Jesus reminds us, who he wants us to draw near is draw near to him during those times of grief and sorrow. Not that he'll make you feel guilty about your failures, but that he'll remind you that you aren't a failure, that you are a success because you are a child of the living and most high God. Let's move on. Verse 18 in John chapter 20. Mary Magdalene went out and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, and they were afraid. You have to understand, because they were being persecuted by the Jews, their, their leader was, was killed. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Oh, I love this because these men were afraid. And Jesus meets them. They were afraid 
because of the, of the persecution that they were about to face. Their leader, the dude who was leading the revolution, the dude who was entering into the city as the king, as the Messiah, he was put to death on a cross. The most shameful death that you could have. That at the time it looked like they had lost. The game was over. Jesus was dead, and so they were hiding because they didn't want to be also killed. They, the, the disciples were co-conspirators with Jesus. They didn't want to be out in the open because who knew what the Pharisees would do to them? They killed Jesus, and Jesus was the Son of God. So what would they do to people like the disciples? Probably the same, or even worse. So the disciples were all holed up in their houses. They were locking the doors. And it's so funny because no matter what doors we have locked, Jesus has the key and he can enter in. It doesn't matter what walls we put up. Jesus is going to get through. And what Jesus says to these afraid men, these men who are hiding away from the responsibilities and consequences of them following Jesus, that Jesus meets them and he says, peace be with you. I love that about Jesus. He knows their heart. He knows they're afraid. And the first thing he explains to them is peace be to you. And then he gives them what anyone who's afraid needs. See, when you're afraid, the reason why we're afraid is because we feel like we've lost control. We've lost, we've lost our power, our ability to control the situation. If you are in control of a situation, there's no need for you to be afraid. It's when you are put in a situation where you, you're, you lose that control, you lose the ability to see what's going to happen, that our fear begins to, to well up inside. And these men were experiencing that kind of fear. And Jesus wants them to fear no more. And so he gives him authority. He gives him the authority that Jesus had. That Jesus had when he had in his earthly ministry. You see, Jesus was going out and he was healing people. But more importantly than healing people, he was forgiving people of their sins. And again, this is not to say that Jesus was forcibly making them Christian. Jesus was not going around from town to town and touching their heads and being like, in the name of myself, you are now Christian. No, he wasn't doing that. What Jesus was doing was he was going around explaining that God offers us forgiveness. He was explaining that your sins are no more. If you, you repent, if you confess that your sins are no more. And so he was doing the same with his disciples. And it's interesting because the way that he even gives his authority, it's the, it's the power to forgive and it's the power to condemn. This is such an interesting power that has been given to the disciples and I would like to argue has been given to you as well. That we now have the power to know that God, being his child, that God has given you the authority to go out and proclaim what Jesus has done. It's not based on what you've done. Please, don't get any of this wrong. Jesus was healing people based on his own authority. You go out and you can proclaim the gospel that God has, has chosen everyone, that anyone, if they confess the name of Jesus, can now be forgiven of their sins. Not based on your power, but based on Jesus and the resurrection. And, and what we even know now is that if, if you encounter someone and they are so angry, they're so against the gospel, it's not that we have the power to condemn them to hell. It's not that at all. 
but it's that we have the power now, that we have the ability to go in confidence in those situations, knowing that we have the power to forgive and to condemn. And we know that no matter what comes our way, that Jesus has given us that authority. So it's not based on my authority that I preach. It's based on God. So no matter how much you don't like me, no matter how much you don't like what I'm saying, I'm sorry, it's not about me. It's about what Jesus has given to me. And what Jesus has given to me, he can also give to you. This is the call of God, that we go out to our friends, to our families, no matter what the persecution may be, no matter how much fear we may have, knowing that Jesus has commissioned you to go out and to forgive, to go out and to proclaim the truth of God. What's so interesting about this is that Jesus responds to fear by giving authority. So it's funny because I'm a very fearful person in a lot of ways. I have a lot of stress, anxiety, a lot of worry. And I think a lot of times I think to myself, okay, I can't feel these emotions. I can't feel these things. I need to be strong as the leader. You know, as, as, the, as the person who's on top, I got to be strong. I realize the way I need to respond to my fear is not by being strong, but by being a child and going to my dad, going to my father in heaven and saying, God, I'm scared. I'm so afraid. I don't know what's going to happen. And what God's response will be is to remind me of the authority that we have in the Holy Spirit, knowing that God resides with us and that God is empowering you and me. And so what I'm saying to you, it's not sinful for you to be afraid but your fear is an invitation. Your fear poses the question, will the Holy Spirit be with you? Finally, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, because obviously he was probably a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So he was not in this first this first encounter, he was probably going out buying groceries or something. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless, so, so Thomas is saying, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So a very similar situation, but we have to understand, eight days later, eight days, so a little longer than a week, then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is how I want us to leave today. This is how I want us to understand what God is, is, is saying to us this day. Doubt is not a sin. But doubt is a way for God to have an opening to come into your life. I, I guarantee you not everyone in here believes in God. Not everyone in here believes in Jesus. And I think what ends up happening is we, we try to be probably how the disciples were in this situation. Thomas is, is around all these believers. 
He's one of all these, all these people who have seen the resurrected Jesus, who believe in the resurrected Jesus because they spoke with the resurrected Jesus. And the resurrected Jesus said, you now have authority to go and forgive and to not forgive sin. You have authority that I've given you on heaven and on earth. And so Thomas wasn't there. He didn't see Jesus. And so all of his friends are saying, oh my God, how good is Jesus? How great is Jesus? How wonderful is Jesus? Thomas is sitting there like, guys, the dude is dead. He's gone. I saw him die. Stop talking about Jesus. Stop talking to me about your faith in Jesus. I saw him die. And I want you to understand, it was eight days later before Jesus showed up to Thomas. That eight days must have felt like an eternity for Thomas. Because Jesus had revealed himself to all the disciples except for him. Could you imagine just the frustration in Thomas? He probably wants to believe. He probably wants to be like, oh yeah, Jesus is alive. Yeah, okay, I'll do what you guys say. I didn't see him, but you guys did, and so I guess I'll believe in what you believe. I guess I'll follow in what you follow, and so I'll just come to church with you. I'll start reading the Bible with you. I'll start doing all these things with you because you believe, but you know what? I've never met Jesus. And I'm kind of afraid to even say that I haven't met Jesus yet because I'm around all of these disciples, these 11 brothers of mine who have confessed with all of their being that Jesus met them, that Jesus, the resurrected, the resurrected Jesus met them. Thomas says, no, I will not believe until I can touch him. Eight days later, eight days later, Jesus comes in. Again, the door is locked, and Jesus doesn't care about locked doors, y'all. He doesn't care about the walls that you have. He doesn't care about what what barriers you're putting against him. Eight days later, he meets the doubting Thomas, the doubting disciple, and he puts his hands out, and he says, touch me. Touch the holes in my hand. Here, let me take your hand and put it in my side where they speared me. And Thomas says, my Lord, my God. Again, I am not here to fabricate your faith. I am not here for you to have fake faith in a resurrected Jesus. I am not here, I am not here to make you feel guilty that you have to believe in Jesus. I'm saying that we all have our responses. When we come into contact, even with this story, that we have our doubts, we have our fears, we have our worries, we have our anxieties. What I'm saying is, please don't come to me. Go to the Lord and see how he will respond to you. My Savior lives. My Redeemer lives. And what I know is that I I have, I have the faith I have the faith to proclaim, not what I've done, but I have the faith to proclaim what he's done. That he died for our sins. He died for all of your failures, all of your mistakes, every wrong that you've done, that he has died for it. And now he says, my God is your God. My Father is your Father. That we get to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That God the Father allowed God the Son to die shamefully on a cross so that through the power of God the Holy Spirit that we can now join with him forever and ever and ever. 
you are not a failure. You are not a failure in any way because my Savior said otherwise. Today, whether you're a Christian, whether you're a believer, whether you're someone who's lost your faith or found your faith, wherever you are, I want you to know God is big enough to handle your reaction to him. If you're angry with God, be angry. If you're sad, if you're grieving about something that's happened in your life, be sad. If you're doubtful, be doubtful. And no matter what your locked doors are, no matter the walls that you make, I hope and I pray that when you do encounter God some way in your life, when you do encounter the power of the living and most high God, that then and only then would your faith be solidified. Would you see his power in your life? Would you touch the holes in his hand and in his side? And you would say, I believe. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. What a day of celebration that we can celebrate his resurrection, knowing that it is through his blood that we are guaranteed a new covenant, one in which we are forgiven of our sins, of our iniquities, and we are made children of God, heirs to your throne, God, heirs to your kingdom, God, that we are given this ability and opportunity to live eternally with you. So, Father, I pray that we would not make this day about man, but we would make this day about Jesus, that this day would be a day that we glorify you, we love you. And in Jesus' name we pray.